Well, good morning, church. So thankful you're here this morning, and we definitely appreciate everyone on the worship team uh, for their roles. It's uh, different parts, but what beautiful harmony. So, so thankful they can help us as we come together in praise to the Lord. And, and we're so thankful that you're here, too. Uh, today's text in Philippians, um, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 14 to 18 today. And uh, one of the themes that we're going to see is about grumbling and complaining. And, and it's one of those things that um, when you're studying it, you tend to think a little more carefully before doing it. So yesterday when the snowflakes were flying, <laughs> I'm not going to lie, it's not that the thought didn't cross my mind about a beach somewhere, but uh, we tried to uh, focus on the, the thankfulness aspect. So we are thankful that you're here today. So if you have your Bibles and you'd like to turn, be able to turn to chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 14 to 18. If you need a Bible, one of our ushers will get you one. Just feel free to raise your hand and they will be happy to pass one out to you. So as you know, we've uh, been here in Philippians. Uh, last week, we looked at probably a, a very difficult section to wrestle with, verses 12 and 13, which we're talking about that dynamic between our role, working out our salvation, but not working for our salvation, and then God's role in that. God is the one who is working in us. He's working the work. And we know that those two things are, are really a tension it's not something you can just easily resolve, nor should we. Uh, and so we were fleshing that out last week. Well, this week, Paul go, goes deeper into that. He, he goes more specific into that. You know, what exactly does that mean to work out your salvation while God is working in you? And so he lays out some ways in which that happens. So that's what we'll be taking a look at. So if you have your Bibles now and you're able to stand, please stand with us as we read verses 14 to 18. I'm actually going to back up and just read verses 12 and 13 by way of reminder. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. You may be seated. Let's pray for the Lord to help us today. Our dear Heavenly Father, as we come to you, we know that on our own, this is an impossible task to do all things without grumbling and complaining. We know that it's on our own, it's impossible for us to shine as lights to this world. But we also know that through your help, through your spirit, through your grace, we are able to do this. So I pray today for any of us that may be struggling in these areas, whether it's grumbling or complaining, um, whether it's shining as a light to the world, in, in any form of working out our salvation, Father, I pray that you will encourage us by the reminder that you're working in us and that you will help us to put these things into action and give us hope. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is the reason why we do have hope. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So... 
as you know, Thanksgivings typically are meant to be a time where we give thanks. They're meant to be a time of celebration where families and friends come together and we have meals together, we do games together, watch movies together, you know, just enjoy life together. That's what Thanksgiving is supposed to be like. But we also know the reality that that's not always what Thanksgiving is like. Uh, And even outside of Thanksgiving, we know that we live in a culture where we would probably describe it as more thankless than thankful. And so it seems as if there is always something that we could complain about or grumble about. There's always something we can find fault in. We don't like the weather. We don't like uh, the person beside us. You know, we don't like this or that. There's no shortage of things to complain about. Well, speaking of Thanksgiving, just by way of example, in November of 2021, I know it's been a couple years, uh, but, but a, navy, a, a lady by the name of Sharon uh, went to bake a pie and uh, she picked a Marie Callender pie, a pumpkin pie to bake. And if you're like me, that's maybe has a baking uh, imperity, a baking challenge. Um, you really can't mess these things up. You pull them out of the box, you put them on a baking tray, you put it in the oven, you turn it on, and you take it out whenever the time says, right? I mean, it's pretty simple, we would think. But anyways, she did this, and when she takes the pie out of the oven, it looked like Satan himself had served it. The thing was black as could be. Um, You'll notice that even the filling inside of it is burned. I mean, this thing was just scorched. And so what does Sharon do? Well, she goes and posts it on Marie Callender's uh, social media page. Thank you for ruining our Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) So, that pie was not the only thing that got scorched following that. And just just so you know that I'm not picking on Sharon, uh, I've done more research into, you know, the follow-up with this, and she made up with Marie Callender, and so she's laughed about um, what's happened, so it's not like I'm picking on her, okay, just so you know that. But boy, did she uh, really get blasted on social media. Um, And so... uh, a bunch of charcoal. (laughs) But most people don't know uh, the rest of the story to this. I mean, so not only did she do that to the pie, but she also did it to the turkey. The turkey came out looking the exact same way. And it was about that time she thought, huh, I wonder if it could be user error. (laughs) So she looked into the oven settings and realized that she had the oven set on Celsius instead of Fahrenheit. (laughs) So it was running about 700 Fahrenheit. (laughs) Um, But, you know, and and again, like I said, the rest of the story is uh, she made up and, you know, everything's good with her. My point is we, we are in a thankless society. We're in a society where we tend to grumble and complain about everything, right? You complain about, you know, yesterday the weather's too cold. Well, next week it'll be too hot. Uh, We complain about how many clothes we have and they're out of style. We complain that our neighbor doesn't kill his dandelions. We complain that the car in front of us is going too slow. I mean, there is just no shortage of things that we complain about. And that makes sense in, a, in the world that we live in, a world that, in which people have turned away from worshiping the creator to worshiping the creation, Romans 1. It makes sense in that kind of world, right, where, where people are no longer serving God. But... The sad thing is when it happens in the church world, 
in our world, a place in God's community where we, above all people, know the true and living God and know his blessings, it's so sad at that point where these same grumblings and complainings are found. And so the problem is that when it happens in God's community, uh, it really has implications. It really has impacts on relationships with one another and towards our light to the outside world. So the danger that the Philippians were facing was the danger of blending into the world. If they weren't careful, they could end up looking more unlike Jesus than like Jesus. And when this happens, not only will their witness to the world suffer, but also their relationships will suffer in God's family. Instead of being marked by love, their relationships will be marked by grumbling, complaining, arguing, and division. So like I said last week, we took a look at what it looks like to live out or to work out our salvation. Um, I'll give an example of that here to be more specific. So we, we were talking about what does it look like to work out your salvation while at the same time God is working in you. So if we think of today's focus, and, and I want to be clear on this, I'm not here today just to focus on the negative, like don't grumble and complain. Paul does address that, but he presents it in a much more positive way, shine as lights to the world. So that's what we want to leave with. Not so much, okay, Josh just said not to grumble and complain, but on the positive aspect, how do I shine as a light to the world? So if we think about this in terms of grumbling and complaining, back, back what we talked about last week, take a man or a woman who's struggling with this, grumbling, grumbling or complaining, and they want to change. So what do they do? Maybe they've tried reading Romans 5.1 uh, six times a day and reminding themselves that, they, that Jesus has declared them righteous, that they have everything to be thankful for. Is that all the person needs to do to change from someone who is thankless to someone who is thankful? Well, what we saw last week was that while that's good, while that's important, it also takes work and effort from this person. Maybe they need to make a list of things they can be thankful for and meditate on that list daily. Maybe they need to fight to take their thoughts captive, to fill them with joy and repent where they start to complain. But we also talked about all of their good effort is fueled by God's effort. So Paul then today takes us from the generalities of working out our salvation into the specifics. And that brings us to our main point today. Our main point today is that God's children are able to shine as lights to the world because of their conduct and character. God's children are able to shine as lights to the world because of their conduct and character. So let's uh, look at the text here and we'll draw away our, our points from this. So in verse 14, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So Paul is now addressing some of the issues the Philippians are struggling with. He commands them in this positive sense, do all things without grumbling or arguing. So that leads us to our first point. As members in God's community, let's not be marked by grumbling or arguing. As members in God's community, let's not be marked by grumbling and arguing. So again, Paul could have written this sentence in a more negative sense. He he could have written it like this, uh, don't grumble and argue when you do all things. But he doesn't write it like that. He writes it in a more positive sense. Do all things in this particular way without grumbling or complaining. 
So we don't know all of the specifics that the Philippians were perhaps grumbling or complaining about. Uh, it could be a lot of things, but we don't know, every, again, everything that was wrong in that community. But Paul does make it clear that grumbling and arguing were at least two of the issues that the Philippians struggled with. And those aren't exactly topics that you may be, you or I may be excited to hear about. When, when, when you hear today, okay, we're going to be talking about grumbling or arguing, you might be thinking, I'd rather have a root canal than hear about that. Right? They're, they're not subjects we particularly like to go to. But these two attitudes are very dangerous in God's community. They rob us of joy. They help foster the environment of division and conflict. They lead us away from Jesus rather than towards Jesus. So when God's people are marked by grumbling or arguing rather than thankfulness, it makes it difficult for those outside of God's community to see that community as a light, something they would want to be part of. And it makes sense, right? If by nature the world is like that, they have no problem with grumbling and arguing. I mean, that's just kind of the norm. Why would they be attracted to this community that does exactly the same thing? And the answer is pretty obvious. They wouldn't be. So, if God's people don't seem to be any different from the rest of the world, then why would other people want to be part of that? Now, unfortunately, grumbling and arguing are not exactly new problems to God's people. Uh, we're going to, as we're going to see, this is a problem that goes all the way back to the very beginning. The word grumbling, it, it conveys the notion of a, an utterance made in a low tone, low tone of voice, a behind-the-scenes kind of talk. It's a complaint. It's an expression of displeasure. Arguing in combination with grumbling is also presented very negatively. And so these two together make a very dangerous duo. Now, grumbling and complaining, grumbling and arguing uh, are two sins that on the surface can seem very small and minor yet they contaminate us in very significant ways. They don't seem to be, at least on the surface, one of those big sins like murder or drunkenness. And so we tend to downplay those. We tend to make those the respectable sins. Well, yeah, I know I grumble. I know I argue some. I know I complain about things, but who doesn't, right? It's, it's okay. God gets it. And so we just kind of downplay those and upplay maybe the, the other sins that we think are more significant. But if we think about it, these are sins that have a very significant impact. Think about today. How many of you came here by way of a vehicle? Did anybody ride a horse today? I didn't see any come up in the parking lot. So I, I would assume that you all came here by way of vehicle. And if you know anything about your, your vehicle, it has a coolant system. It's got a way to keep the engine cool. And if that cooling system becomes contaminated, if things get in there that aren't supposed to be in there, it can lead to overheating, which as a result can lead to catastrophic engine failure, right? So a little bit of impurity can really corrupt the whole system. And Paul knows that the same thing is true when it comes to grumbling. Even a little bit can quickly kill life and cause damage in relationships. So this word for grumbling, it's not a common word in the New Testament, but it certainly appears frequently in the Old Testament. 
You think back to places like Exodus 15 through 17, and grumbling is a frequent phrase throughout that. You get into Numbers, you see it there as well. Deuteronomy, it's picked up there as well. So definitely in the Old Testament, grumbling and complaining are major problems. But even though in the New Testament, Paul and other New Testament writers do identify that as a sin that is taken to be, it should be taken seriously. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10.10, Paul is bringing to mind this example of the Israelite generation, and he says this, he says, he gives the warning to the Corinthians, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So Paul warns the Corinthians that God destroyed the Israelite generation in part because of their grumbling, and he's warning them, the same thing will happen to you if you persist in grumbling. God takes that very seriously, and he wants the Philippians to know that too. He doesn't want this to be another Corinth. He doesn't want this to be another Israelite generation from the Old Testament, but he wants to warn them against grumbling and complaining. So maybe we need that reminder that God takes grumbling very seriously. So if you remember your Old Testament, the Israelites who had just been delivered from slavery, just been set free from Exodus and seen God's powerful hand through all those uh, displays to the Egyptians, uh, through all those plagues, and then God frees them from that and then takes them on this journey and they get to the edge of the Red Sea and they don't know how they're going to go, and then God parts the sea, and they go through that. He closes the sea in and destroys the Egyptians, and, and then what happens? They sing this song of praise, Moses' song of praise in Exodus 15, and right after that, the grumbling starts. Oh, God, why'd you put us here? You bring us here with no food and no water, and that phrase just continues to go on and on throughout it, and you get pretty sick of it pretty quick. It's like, God gives them food. Next chapter, they do the same thing. God gives them water. Next chapter, they do the very same thing. So we'll look at one place in particular just to emphasize the way that God views grumbling is very negatively. So in Numbers chapter 14, looking at verses 26 to 35, And so this is the context of when they get to the very edge of the promised land, they send out the spies, the spies come back, they bring that negative report, the people are too big, God brought us here to kill us, and this is the, and so they complain, and this is what the Lord says to the people. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall this wicked wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephthah, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they will know the land you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken." Surely I will do this against this wicked congregation who are gathered 
together against me. In the wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. So God takes grumbling pretty seriously, right? It's no light matter, and we want to look at why. Why does God take grumbling so seriously? Well, grumbling does three things. Grumbling reveals our hearts, but in particular, it displays a lack, lack of thankfulness. It displays a lack of trust in God and His goodness. And it displays the belief that life should go the way we want. So let's take a look at each one of these things uh, just for a moment here. So for one, grumbling displays a lack of thankfulness. A lack of thankfulness. It really sends the message, is this all I get? The focus is either something that we don't have that we think that we should or something that we do have that we think that we shouldn't have. We grumble about the weather. It's too cold. It's too hot. Then, then you know, when the opposite changes, we grumble about that. So there's no shortage, like I've said, of things that we can grumble for. We go from one extreme to the other. Now, I'm always encouraged by people who send encouragement cards, thank you cards, even for no reason. But if you, think, if you think about grumbling, it really is a card. It's not a thankful card, though. It's a thankless card, and it's addressed to the P.O. box of heaven. It sends a different kind of message, that God really hasn't given us what we need. So thankfulness is the refusal to acknowledge that, it's a refusal to acknowledge God and His gifts. It's really a form of theft. Now, I'm sure that some of you have given a gift to someone and they've not acknowledged that gift. Maybe they didn't say a word about it. Maybe you've done something nice for somebody and they just didn't even say a word about it. How does that make you feel? Not very good, right? I mean, even though we weren't necessarily wanting something back, it would have been nice to at least have the acknowledgement. Like, yeah, by the way, thank you for doing that for me. But when there's nothing, it's just kind of like, really? So what, what do we think that, that it's like for God, who has poured and showered all his blessings upon us to not receive any thanksgiving, but to receive the opposite, thanklessness? So it's not that God needs our thanksgiving. He's not lacking any, in anything by not getting it, but he rightfully deserves it. So thankful, thanklessness robs God of the worship he rightfully deserves. Secondly, grumbling displays a lack of trust in God, a lack of trust in God and His goodness. You saw that in the Israelite generation that was grumbling. They didn't trust God. God, we can't trust you to keep your word to get us to where you said you were taking us. We can't trust you to bring us there safely and give us everything we need on the journey. You're not good. If you were really good, you wouldn't have allowed these problems in our life. You wouldn't have let us uh, deal with these things. So maybe think back to the last time that we complained about something. Have you thought about the kind of message that it sends to God? God, I, I can't trust you in this. You should be doing something different for me. God, you aren't good. If you were, I wouldn't be dealing with this. Third, grumbling conveys the belief that life should go the way we think it should. Really what we're saying is, Lord, if, if I were in charge, it would look different. If I were in charge, my spouse would do this differently. If I were in charge, my kids would do this differently. If I were in charge, I, I would have picked different people around me, a different health conditions, different financial conditions, all of those things. So really, grumbling brings God into our courtroom where we are the judge and where we put God on trial. 
Isn't it amazing, if you think about it, how we can read these biblical passages and sing those songs, just echoing and and reflecting on God's power and might. We can look out at, at the elements, the tornadoes, the mountains, all of those things, and we can say, yes, Lord, I am so amazed by your incredible power. It just blows me away. Yet we turn around and we put God on trial. We have the arrogance to think we can do that for God doing or not doing something in our lives. That's exactly what the Israelites did back in Deuteronomy, Numbers, but we do the same thing. God, if if you really loved me, why did you allow this in my life? If you really loved me, why did you give me this spouse or, or these children? If, if you really loved me, why are you giving me these health conditions or these financial conditions? What we're doing is bringing God into our courtroom and judging him. Now, the reality of it is it's far easier to grumble than it is to give thanks. So notice what Paul says. He says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. All things, not some things, not the easy things, but all things. And then arguing, that's the second sin that goes along with grumbling. So just to be clear, we can disagree without sinfully arguing. Disagreement is fine. That's not, there's not a problem with that. The, the kind of argument that Paul is talking about here is a sinful argument where we care more about what we want our way than what the other person wants or is pleasing to God. What should you do if you find yourself in the beginning stages of an argument with someone? Well, we can remember that there is a right way to conduct ourselves. We can disagree, like I said, even very strongly uh, about many things. I believe, sadly, that we as Christians have lost the ability to disagree well. We just don't tend to do that well. So attacking the other person's character or name-calling are not right ways of conducting ourselves. Neither are yelling at them, making statements that aren't true or exaggerated, or storming off in anger. So I would suggest that email, text, social media are some of the worst places to express disagreements. People can't see your facial expressions and emotions, and words are easily misunderstood or motives are assumed. So firing off a scorching email to roast someone hardly glorifies God. So for some of us, the expression of disagreement could be one of our greatest areas for spiritual growth. I myself have been guilty of not always expressing disagreement in ways that were not the most loving or kind. I will definitely acknowledge that. And, and many of us have been hurt by, the other, by ways that Christians have expressed their disagreements, especially using some of these formats. So friends, bluntness is not one of the fruits of the Spirit. You can take a look at the, the list right there, and bluntness is not on that list but humility and gentleness are. God calls us to work through disagreements with grace and patience. There are times in which we must divide for the sake of gospel issues, but far more often we are called to work through our disagreements with patience, grace, and humility. So here's a suggestion. If you have a disagreement with someone about something, wait and pray about it for three days. See if you still feel the same way after praying and waiting for three days. If you do, then reach out to them to meet with the person with the intent to see where they're coming from, 
rather than assuming their motives. Meet with them in person instead of sending off an email. Offer to be part of the solution instead of leaving them with nowhere to go with it. We don't have a perfect church. Does that surprise anyone? We just don't, right? And so there's going to be plenty that we could complain about. No question about that. If you want, if you want to, you can find no shortage of things to complain about. I will readily acknowledge that. But how does all this fit in well with God's community? As we've been seeing, not very well. So Paul is very clear that Christians should not be known for grumbling or arguing. My question for us is, how would people know us? If they were to look at us from the outside, what would they say about us? Are we more known for grumbling and arguing, arguing than we are for thanksgiving? Are we more known for grumbling and arguing than we are for humility? So it's far easier to jump on someone who is a drug addict or one of those bad sinners. But again, thinking about how dangerous it is to be a grumbler or an arguer. So we've seen some reasons in which grumbling and arguing is wrong and how it kills relationships. But Paul also provides uh, another kind of answer to why we're not to do this. In other words, why shouldn't we do all things without grumbling and arguing? And, and the so that answer is so that we can be blameless and innocent, shining as lights to the world and holding fast the word of life. So that leads us to our second point. As members in God's community, shine as a light to the nations. As members in God's community, shine as a light to the nations. So, so Paul says, after he said, do all things without grumbling and arguing, he says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twi twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So God's community is meant to be different from the world. This is why Paul uh, lays this out. He moves from how God's community should not look, what it should not be marked by, into how God's community should look and what it should be marked by. So his point was in the previous section that the Philippians must be warned about the Israelite generation, about their grumbling and arguing, and not fall into the same trap. So he's going to provide two reasons why they must do this. So first, the, the Philippians must work out their salvation without grumbling and arguing so that they will be blameless and innocent, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And secondly, in doing that, they will shine like stars in the universe, holding out the word of life. Let's take a look at these two different aspects right there to see what Paul means by that. So again, Paul wants the Philippians to be free from grumbling and arguing so that they can be blameless and shine as lights to the world. He wants their quality of life that Christians have with each other to be radically different and better than the relational standards the world has. Now, Paul mentions blamelessness. And by blamelessness, he doesn't mean sinless. He's not expecting them to be sinless. He is expecting them, though, to be obedient to God. Blamelessness has been described of people throughout the Bible, such as Job, who is described as blameless. And again, it doesn't mean sinless, but it means uh, seeking to live your life 
free from selfish ambition, pride, self-centeredness, grumbling, and arguing. It's living to please God. That's what it looks like to be blameless. Not perfect, but living to please God. Think of taking a regular shower and changing your clothes. We do this because we naturally get dirty and start to stink. So we need to clean up regular. And in our spiritual lives, we need to do the same. We pick up dirt from our ongoing sin. And so we need to, in a sense, have that cleansing. And that happens through confession of sin, asking forgiveness, repentance, and dealing with our sin quickly so it doesn't start to stink. The blameless Christian is not a sinless Christian, but they do deal with their sin quickly so it doesn't stain them up. Now, what does this look like in God's community? It means that we, as God's people, have the regular practice of confessing our sin to each other. We're known by our kind and loving words rather than our complaining and arguing words. So Paul wants the Philippians not only to be blameless, but also to be innocent or pure. What he means there is they should be free from destructive patterns and behaviors, such as complaining and arguing. It's good to just take a moment and do a spiritual x-ray on ourselves individually as as well as corporately. What would others say if they were giving us a spiritual x-ray? Would they see us as blameless and innocent? Or would they say we tend to be marked more by grumbling and complaining? So it can sting to think about that we as God's community have a long ways to go in this area. We wanna continually ask the question, are people refreshed by our community? Or are they more discouraged and hurt by the way we interact with each other? Now, earlier uh, in the section we looked at last week, Paul has reminded the Philippians that they are beloved by God. They are beloved children. He again points out that they should live in this manner, this blamelessness, this innocence, because they are children of God. He says that they're uh, right there in verse 12, uh, um, 15 right there, children of God. So this, this phrase, and then what follows that, where he talks about the crooked and twisted generation, is Paul's citation of Deuteronomy 32.5. And again, he's citing back to the Israelite generation, which says they have dealt corruptly with him or with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So Paul does not want the Philippians to become another Israelite generation. He does not want them to become another Corinth. And so he is providing the Philippians with the greatest assurance possible. How could he not say anything more encouraging to them than to remind them that they are God's children? It's a needed reminder because Paul has been challenging them very hard in ways in which they are to live. And so again, he reminds them, you're God's children. That should give you hope. So why, why is this such an encouragement to us, the reminder that we are God's children? Well, it means that God has saved us, that he's given to us grace and peace. We see that in 1-2. It's the reminder that God has started a work in us that he will bring to completion in 1-6. It's the reminder that we have been granted love, encouragement, comfort, and compassion, chapter 2, 1 and 2. It's the reminder that God sent his son for us to die for us on a cross in our place, chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. 
It's the reminder that he is at work within us to fulfill his good purposes. We looked at that last week in verse 13. He will give us a righteousness that is not our own, chapter 3, verse 9. He's near to us, so we don't need to be anxious. We'll see that in chapter 4, verse 6. And he will supply our every need according to his riches in Christ. Perhaps we overlook those truths. It's possible that we get so caught up in focusing on the things that we don't have that we forget the greatest truths, the greatest riches that we do have. And by using this children of God language, Paul does three things. He gives the Philippians needed assurance in their journey of sanctification. They can change and they can obey God because they are his children. Secondly, he uses this language to, uh, to remind them that this is the way we should understand the church. Not as a building, but as the family of God. If we're children, we're part of God's family. So how do we treat others in the church if we're family? Not with grumbling, not with arguing or fighting, but with love. And then third, he uses this language to motivate them. Motivate them to press on. Children should reflect the character of God. They must live out the values of their father. So when Paul says they should be without blemish, it's because they are God's children. This language is used to describe Christ as a sacrificial lamb. Now back in chapter 1, if you remember, Paul, Paul has already prayed that the Philippians would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He's repeating that again right here. They want to live in a way that's going to reflect that. So the Philippians don't become God's children by not grumbling or arguing. That's not the way it works. Rather, it's they are to live this way because they are God's children. So does that make sense? Don't read this language here in chapter two and think, well, if I don't grumble and if I don't complain, then God accepts me enough to bring me into his family. It's not that way. It's because we are in God's family, this is the way his children are to live right there. So Paul has a relational focus in mind. He wants the Philippians to be pure and blameless, not only in their individual character, but also in their relationships. How are they gonna be able to do that? By letting go of their arguing and complaining. But right now, the Philippians are not here. They're stuck. They've been contaminated by their fighting and arguing. They don't have blamelessness in their relationships. So what are they gonna do? Well, by God's power, they are gonna be able to get rid of the grumbling and arguing and relational sins and live in relationship with each other as God's children. And they are to do this in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. In other words, the, the Philippians are living in a world that has been fallen. It's been badly impacted by sin. The Bible uses crooked in a very negative sense. It refers to people who are warped, distorted, and perverted from the right condition. And so these two words together, crooked and twisted, paint the picture of the world that the Philippians live in. This world is corrupt. It's perverted. It's godless. Like the Israelite generation in the wilderness, the world is lost. It's wandering in wickedness. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Sound in any ways like the world that we live in? Think our world has gone bad? It has, but it's in a way not much different from the world that Paul was writing in. 
But the Philippians are not called to disengage from the world, to retreat and form their own little community that's completely separated and isolated from the world. Rather, they are to shine as stars in the universe. So Paul commands the Philippians to shine as stars in the universe. His his analogy is a very powerful one. All of you, I'm sure, have gone outside on a, a dark night and looked up at the sky and you see those stars, though they are what, millions of miles away? You see it very, very brightly. You can see how bright it is against a dark sky. So yeah, our our culture is very black. It's very dark. But as believers shine, they reflect the light of Jesus Christ to the world. In Matthew 5, 14 to 16, probably the best commentary on this passage, Jesus describes his disciples as already lights of the world, but then he commands them to let their light shine before men so that others may see their good works. Paul here is most likely referencing Daniel 12, 2, Daniel 12, 3, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn away many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So this verb here in verse 15 where Paul is talking about shining, it's a continuous action. It's to continue to shine. It's not a one-time event, but it's an ongoing shining. Have you ever thought about what sets us apart or makes us distinct as Christians? This question has been answered in many different ways uh, by Christians throughout the years. Some have responded by, like I said, disengaging from society, forming their own little communities. Others have responded with peculiar ways of living. Others have just, set, just responded by just being plain weird. But that's not what Paul is saying. That's not what, that's not what makes us distinct by just being plain weird. So as Christians, we shine Uh, best as stars in the universe by displaying a difference in our relationships and attitude. Instead of being marked by arguing or grumbling or selfishness, we instead reflect God's values, God's priorities, especially in the way we treat others. And it's probably the, the greatest challenge that we face to live in this way. It's easy to fall into the trap of taking the easy road. And as a result, we don't look that much different than the world does. So not only are we to shine as stars in the universe, but we also hold the word of life, hold forth the word of life. That answers the question of how do we shine? The answer is by holding forth the word of life. So what is Paul getting at here? He's saying that, the, that Christians shine by both living out the gospel and by holding forth the gospel of the, the good news of the glorious gospel to unbelievers. So the Philippians are to do what Paul and others have done, offer the pure gospel, not a corrupted gospel, to the world in a gentle, compassionate, and loving manner. There are some different senses in which this phrase, holding forth the word of life, can be taken. One way is offering a drink to a thirsty world. How many of you on a hot summer day have been really, really thirsty? and you've been doing something, and and somebody came and held forth the bottle of water. You remember that thirst you had for that water? You wanted it? That's a way in which holding forth the gospel, what it does. It, It gives this drink to a thirsty world. Another sense is it's like a light in the darkness. It drives the darkness away. 
And the third sense in which this, this phrase can mean is it can, the gospel can be held forth like, a, like, a, like the sword of the spirit in the sense of a military advance. As the gospel is being held forth, the gospel is advancing in the world. Why is all that important? Well, it's because we've been called to do something with what we've been given. If we hide or if we don't display the gospel in the right way through our conduct and relationships, then the world won't be able to see very well the glorious riches of Christ. They won't want to enter into relationship in God's community if it's no different than the community that they're currently living in. One commentator says it like this, instead of being preoccupied by complaining, the church should be preoccupied by proclaiming the word of life. Complaining turns off the light of the church in the world. Proclaiming the word of life shines the light of the life, shines the light of life of Christ into the darkness of the world. Now, all of those truths certainly stretch us. Again, in God's community, we're called to live far differently and clearly so that people notice. It's, it's a different kind of community. And what is success in God's community? It's living according to the pattern of Jesus Christ in humility and service and sacrifice and suffering and love and perhaps even death. Is that hard? Absolutely. And given the difficulty in all that, it can be very hard to maintain joy. And that brings us to our third point. As members in God's community, you can have joy in hard situations. As members in God's community, you can have joy in hard situations. So Paul does not want his years of service to the Philippians to be wasted. He's calling for them to obey, yet to obey with joy. So in verse 16, he says, he, he said, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul wants the Philippians to obey. He doesn't want his service to them to be wasted. And so he uses the words run and labor, which bring out the effort that he's put into his ministry. This is certainly uh, uh, not a sit back kind of a thing. These, these words describe back-breaking effort, that labor right there. It's, it's a manual labor, a back-breaking effort. It's a sustained, wearying effort for the sake of the gospel. And that points us back again to what we saw last week, what it means to work out our salvation. So it's certainly no let go and let God kind of work. It's a strenuous effort like an athlete would have or someone doing manual labor. It's running to win the race, the prize at stake. But as we saw again last week, it's God who is empowering that work. Gospel work is hard work, but it's spirit-fueled work. Now, even though Paul has sacrifi uh, sacrificed laborly, he, he's labored sacrificially in his service, he has joy. And we don't want you to miss that. Nothing, including suffering or hard times, is going to stop or hinder Paul's joy. And so even in verse 17, we see this, that even if Paul's life is to be poured out, he can still have joy. Even if it's to be spent on behalf of God, it will not stop his joy. 
So Paul is identifying in a sense with Christ back in chapter 2, verse 9, who also emptied himself, who was also crucified for our sins. Now it's good to stop and, and just ask ourselves, do we think of our Christian life as a sacrifice presented to God? We see that concept in Romans 12:1, where we've been called to present our lives as living sacrifices. Paul uh, gives the Philippians a word picture right here. He's presenting their efforts as, as this drink sacrifice. He's, he's like presenting himself as a drink offering to God who's been poured out over the sacrifice of the Philippians. So he links their efforts then as part of this God-pleasing obedience as well. Now you may be wondering, well, what's that have to do with me? I mean, I, I don't understand how this fits into my life right here. Some of you may be called to be cross-cultural missionaries where you will go and you, were, you will spend your life um, pleasing God as, as a living sacrifice, but others of you won't be able to go. You'll be at home. So is it possible for you to make an acceptable offering to God in your life as well, even if you haven't been called to go like others have? And that's really what Paul is helping the Philippians see. He's on mission, but can they in the same way do the same with their lives? And the answer is yes. And so what is that? What can they offer to God as acceptable worship, acceptable sacrifice, acceptable, and it's obedience. So obedience is a worthy sacrifice to God and one form is not better to God than another form is. So what Paul wants them to see is Yes, his sacrifice, his, his obedience was pleasing to God, but the Philippians can offer acceptable obedience to God as well. They can offer, their sacrifice can be approved by God as well. God can be pleased just as much with the Philippians as he is with Paul. And so that's what he's writing to encourage them about. So there is difficulty in the work that Paul and the Philippians are in, but there's also great joy I think the ESV is a little bit confusing. It, it doesn't allow us to see this quite as clear. It starts this section by saying, I am glad. And that causes us to miss the emphasis on joy, on rejoicing. So literally, Paul is saying, I rejoice. Rejoicing together with all of you. So this rejoicing language is, is actually consistent in verses 16 and uh, 16 through 18, or 17 through 18 right there. So this emphasis on joy and rejoicing, it definitely is challenging to us. And just like the section on grumbling and arguing has been, if we're honest in our circumstances and troubles, joy is the last thing on our minds. Remember that in this context, Paul was getting ready to face the Roman authorities. He wasn't sure even about his life, if this was going to be the end of him. Even if it was, Paul is rejoicing. You mean, to, now we, need, we do need to be careful here. Some of us may be thinking, well, yeah, I could rejoice if I was faced losing my life for the sake of the gospel, but I'm not. See, my present circumstances are very difficult. It seems like there's no way out. It's, it's not that I'm suffering for the sake of the gospel, so I don't know if I can still rejoice even if there doesn't seem to be a way out of what I'm facing. But the answer is still yes. And the reason we can have joy in any circumstance, any situation that we're facing is because our focus is on the Lord. He is the focus. He is the reason for our joy. 
So Paul is drawing on the, he's drawing the Philippians to partake in his joy. He's appealing to them, set aside all of their differences, all of their selfish ambition, all of their pride, all of their grumbling, all their arguing, everything to come together in unity and rejoice. Now let's think back on where we've come from in this section here. So we've been reminded that we've been given a glorious status children of God, beloved children of God. We should rejoice over our salvation. We've also seen that we shouldn't take our salvation for granted. We should work out our salvation in the fear of God, but by His power. This working out of our salvation reminds us that we can't just sit back, but that it does call for hard work and effort. But by God's power we work. We run hard, we labor hard, but we're following the pattern of Jesus Christ even until death if necessary. We've been reminded that as children of God, we must avoid falling into unworthy patterns of living like the Israelite generation did. We're not victims who grumble and complain. Instead of adopting the patterns and behaviors of the world, we must live blameless and innocent, especially in our relationships. In our relationships with other people, We pursue unity and humility. In the relationship with this dark and twisted world, we shine as lights to the world. As believers in family with one another, the right quality of life shines out into the world. As a result, people are attracted to Christ because of the superior superior quality of our relationships, our beliefs and our values and our actions. But in another sense, We've been called to be involved with the world. We point them to Christ. Shining as a light in the world is not easy, but it's empowered by God. It's a pleasing sacrifice to Him. Given that this work is hard, it's sacrificial, it can become very easy to be discouraged and tired. When we suffer, we can fall into despair. But we see the example of Jesus and Paul that they did not. Rather, they were filled with joy and thankfulness. So where are you at today? Are you struggling with grumbling and arguing rather than gratitude? We can be encouraged in our fight against grumbling and to shine as lights to the world by the example and the power of Jesus. So again, right in the middle of Philippians, Paul puts the example of Jesus Christ right there. Jesus does not grumble about the work that the Father has called him to. He does not grumble about the difficulty or the persecution that he faces. He doesn't argue with the Father. Instead, he obeys with joy and willingness. So the fact that Jesus did not grumble means that we can have forgiveness in our grumbling. Had Jesus sinned and grumbled, there would be no forgiveness for us in our grumbling. It means that Jesus meets us in our grumbling to transform our hearts God knew that our human condition was bad, bad enough that we could not change on our own. So he's supernaturally, in a sense, unzips us and gets inside of us to transform us. Gratitude is supernatural, yet like a garden, we have to work to cultivate it. So let's end with what can we do to foster gratitude? By God's grace, what might that look like for us? And here's just a few things. You can build gratitude into your prayer life by thanking God at the beginning of your prayers. 
You can testify to God's goodness by sharing with one person a day something that God has done that you're thankful for. Think of the difference that that would make if, if maybe one person outside your immediate circle was reminded by you of something that you're thankful for. You could pick one attribute of God to study for a month, find some Bible verses that relate to that attribute, read them and give thanks to God for who he is. Those are just a few ways we could cultivate gratitude. So let's end then by going to the Lord in prayer and asking him to allow us and to help us shine as lights to the world and to cultivate that gratitude in our hearts. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, it is hard to be reminded not to grumble and argue that that's not the pattern of life that you have called us to, that that's not how our relationships should be marked. And Lord, if, if people are like me, they're aware of these many times in which this happens. So Father, please forgive us. We thank you for Jesus Christ who has died for our sins, who has died to forgive us from the sin of grumbling and arguing. Lord, help us by your grace to be different today, to be known for people who are thankful, not overlooking what we need to correct, not ignoring sin, but to be thankful, to be lights as, as shining to the world. I'm thankful for each and every person in this room today and watching online. And I am confident, Lord, by the power of your spirit and your work within them, that you are powerful enough to enable them to shine as a light to the world. So I pray that all of us can leave today encouraged by the hope, Lord, that you are working within us. Help us work, but work hard, but to do it by your power. May we shine forth as lights to the universe. May unbelievers be drawn. May they see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.